Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to this evening's uh, event. This evening's event is organized by the Hellenic Observatory here at the London School of Economics, and it is part of a series of public events organized by the European Institute together with FT Business. And we'd like to acknowledge our appreciation of the support that the Financial Times gives to the series of public lectures, public debates that we have uh, in the European Institute. For tonight's event, the Cyprus High Commission has also been very helpful, so we uh, are very grateful for their assistance with organizing this evening's event. Tonight, we focus on Cyprus's entry to the Eurozone, an entry which took place at the beginning of this year, Cyprus and Malta making the Eurozone 15 countries. Why focus on Cyprus and its Euro entry? At one level, Cyprus, of course, is a very small economy. I understand that Cyprus represents something like 0.2% of the Eurozone's GDP, gross domestic product. However, despite its size, its entry to the Eurozone, I think, raises a number of much larger questions. I was very intrigued to read in some of the media coverage of Cyprus's entry to the Euro uh, some of the foreign speculation about uh, the effects on the governing council of the European Central Bank and whether with Cyprus joining and Malta joining, whether the balance of votes in the governing council would be changed. Indeed, one of our newspapers referred to it as the emergence of a Latin Hellenic bloc, a coalition uh, which may uh, change the policy of the ECB. Indeed, if I may, the same newspaper went on uh, to speculate that uh, Governor Ofanides, the governor of the, the Bank of Cyprus, the central bank, uh, trained in the US Federal Reserve, uh, they described as an inflation dove, uh, someone who potentially may have a more opportunistic approach to fighting inflation. Gosh, I thought, one small country, so much speculation, uh, so much apparently in the balance on the ECB. But also, of course, domestically, the entry of Cyprus to the Eurozone raises uh, other questions. Uh, President Papadopoulos has uh, suggested that entry to the Eurozone may help to create uh, one economy on the island, may be a lever for overcoming uh, the well-known conflict and the reunification of the island. A stimulus to peace. Well, we look forward to hearing possibly how this might uh, occur. We wish the peace, but how? In any event, this evening we have two expert speakers to address the issue of Cyprus entering the Eurozone, the challenges and implications. We're delighted to welcome back a distinguished LSE alumnus, Dr. Michalis Saris, who gained his BSc econ economics here at the LSE and then uh, chose to go to 
I think, North America for his PhD, but uh, will be generous and acknowledge his LSE training as being clearly the intellectually changing experience in his life. Having visited the former colonies, uh, he chose to stay, I think, in Washington and for something like 30 years worked in the World Bank with various responsibilities covering economic and social development in Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe. His responsibilities were widespread. Then in 2005, he was enticed back uh, to be Minister of Finance in Cyprus, and it's clearly in that capacity that he's speaking to us uh, this evening. Our second speaker will be well known to many of you. Uh, Christopher Pissarides is a professor of economics here at the LSC, one of our most distinguished uh, professors at the school. Uh, he's received a number of awards. Uh, his work has been internationally acknowledged in labor, economics, macroeconomics, uh, etc. Highly regarded. Indeed, receiving a number of awards, I think a number of us, I think the LSE expects him to get a Nobel Prize before he's finished, really. Uh, this ought to be the benchmark of uh, his future career at the LSE. But he did have benchmarks at the LSE. So, we have two speakers. There could not be better speakers to address this particular topic of Cyprus entering the Eurozone. Our format is that I'm going to invite uh, the minister to speak first. And then Chris Pissarides will speak uh, next. We will also have plenty of time for questions and answers. Uh, I think both speakers want to encourage discussion and questions. Uh, and then eventually we must finish before 8 p.m. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. So let me close. On behalf of the Hellenic Observatory, let me welcome you here to this evening's uh, event. I can see that there's a number of friends in the audience. We're very grateful for those who have made this possible. And I now hand over to our first speaker, our distinguished LSE alumnus, Michalis Saris. Thank you very much. I'd like to thank you all for coming, for inviting me here. I'm honored, of course, to be sharing the podium with Chris. Uh, whom I've known for longer than I care to reveal, but uh, we even overlapped together for a short while at the Central Bank of Cyprus, uh, I should say several decades ago, but we are all very proud of his distinguished career uh, thereafter. Um, there are perhaps two very significant events in the modern history of Cyprus that are connected with its economic and political life. But tonight we are focusing on economics. One is the uh, joining the European Union and the other the Eurozone. Both has helped focus our attention on what needed to be done for our own sake independently of the need to abide to the rules of the club we were joining. Uh, the road to the European Union was a catalyst to significant change in the economic field, uh, significant liberalization. We came around to do things that we had discussed for too long, but uh, could not command neither the 
consensus, nor I believe often the political courage to, to um, bring about needed change, uh, liberalization in markets, in financial markets, in um, markets for goods and services, uh, um, a better business address, more favorable um, um, uh, business environment. Uh, generally, I think there was um, a significant improvement in the landscape, and it showed. It showed in terms of economic outcomes. A similar, and I would say even more pronounced phenomenon is associated with the road to the Eurozone. Uh, paramount, of course, is fiscal consolidation. And you don't have to belong to any particular school uh, in terms of, uh, of uh, whether you, in sort of in terms that date a little back, whether you are a Keynesian or a monetarist or an eclectic or a neoclassicist or a neoliberal, to believe that uh, macroeconomic stability is essential. is essential for a number of things, certainly to underpin uh, business confidence, to underpin sustainable growth, employment, uh, the kinds and even social policy, uh, I dare say. So uh, the fact that we had to bring our deficit from um, a significant deficit uh, not so long ago, less than four years ago, or over 6%, closer to 6.5 to below 3%. As a matter of fact, last year we ended the year with a deficit of 1.4, and this year with a surplus. All was done, of course, in an effort to bring the public finances under control, and it was done in a way that uh, allowed us at the same time to maintain high growth rates and, um, as I said, uh, remarkable performance in the employment field. Cyprus is one of the few countries where significant economic migration is accompanied with a decline in the domestic uh, unemployment rate. We now have uh, anywhere between 15 and 18 percent of our labor force um, being satisfied by economic uh, migrants, and the unemployment rate uh, hovers around uh, 3.8 percent, which by any standards it's, it's uh, very respectable, and uh, the uh, growth rate, as I said, uh, no, I didn't say, but it's, uh, it's above 4%, twice the European average. And that, of course, has translated into significant and robust um, um, tax revenues, which has allowed us to record the significant improvement that I referred to in the, um, in the significant reduction in the budget deficit that was this year uh, translated into a budget uh, surplus. Uh, people work, they pay taxes, businesses perform well, they turn profits, they pay taxes. We have uh, again um, illustrated 
what is often discussed but uh, rarely put in practice, that you reduce your tax rates and you improve your tax revenues. Cyprus has amongst the lowest tax um, rates in Europe, a corporate tax rate of 10%, and the income tax for individuals. We have uh, 17, 20,000 euros now for which you pay no taxes, and above that uh, you pay from 10 to 25%, which I think by any standards are good rates. So with that kind of, um, of um, fiscal regime, with that kind of economic performance, and with a sensible approach to spending, and that is key. The biggest temptation when you have a robust uh, fiscal performance is to allow revenues to follow, sorry, to allow expenditures to follow revenues in an upward direction. And that, I think, is a cardinal sin because uh, uh, revenues can easily be reversed, but expenditures are rarely reversible. They are considered as... Uh, acquired rights by the beneficiaries and it's almost impossible to turn them back. So you need to establish priorities and you need to target better, which uh, we did. So leading up to the euro, we were able to consolidate public finances. We were able to reduce significantly the public debt from about 70% of GDP to less than 60% and we are now on course to reduce it to less than 50% by the end of 2008. So by all accounts, um, a very good economic performance, a strict adherence to what is known as the Maastricht criteria, which are the ticket uh, to the Eurozone, the stability of the exchange rate, the fiscal deficit below 3%, the debt to be at least 60% of GDP and be declining, and a, and a stable exchange rate, which of course we have been able to do without any uh, unusual trouble. All this was underpinned by a very successful partnership between the government, which provided this macroeconomic stability that I, that I referred to, and the private sector that showed a remarkable ability to go after opportunities as they arose. The Cyprus economy within our lifetime has been transformed from an agricultural to a light industry and now to a primarily service economy. And even the importance of tourism is declining, not because the sector itself is declining, but because other service sectors like accounting, shipping, banking, legal services are really expanding at spectacular rates. So in absolute terms, tourism spending is doing well and tourism revenues but of course in relative terms it is now overshadowed by these um, other sectors. So the conditions for entering the Eurozone were right and I want to emphasize that. There are important rules that are enforced and they are increasingly enforced by the European Union. I personally believe that it will become increasingly difficult to enter the Eurozone as people interpret a lot more strictly the sustainability of the Maastricht criteria, what is, for example, a sustainable inflation rate at at least uh, uh, no worse than 1.5% at the three 
best performers. You could, you could satisfy it for a year, but somebody could say that the long-term sustainability is in doubt because of a number of factors. Um, and I think that's what is going to be increasingly the case. So we were able to, on our way to, to, to satisfy this criteria, I think we have enabled the Cyprus economy to enter the Eurozone in as good a situation with as good uh, um, prospects as any of the countries that entered the, Euro the Eurozone before us in terms of being able to be a successful member of the Eurozone, to remain competitive, to sustain good performance, because I think none of you will be surprised to hear that in and of itself being a member of the union is neither a necessary nor a sufficient condition for doing economically well. You can be in the European Union uh, Eurozone and do badly. You can be outside it and do well. You can be inside and do well. Um, if you are as prudent as the Germans have been over the last few years in terms of containing unit labor costs, in terms of, uh, of um, uh, sustaining the competitiveness of the economy despite a very strong euro. They are recording uh, remarkable surpluses in the balance of trade, which just looking at an economic textbook and seeing at the relationship of the euro and the dollar, you would have said if you're trying to sell the same thing and you're doing it in euros or dollars, there is no question you would be buying it in dollars. And yet the Germans are doing very well because they are managing their economy uh, remarkably well. So it's, it's very important uh, to know what you are doing and uh, to um, take advantage of the rules of the club of you are joining, not because they are imposed on you, because, but because they are very good uh, for, for, for your people. The transition to the Eurozone has also been remarkably smooth. I suspect, I see from the faces here, there are many people uh, from Cyprus and maybe you have your own information from your relatives, but leading up to the Euro, there was a lot of skepticism, a lot of phobias, a lot of doubts. We were going from a good currency to a better currency not from a bad currency to a good currency. And when you are trying to convince people who think things are going well and they have been um, uh, served very well by the Cyprus pound, to try to convince them to change to the euro is not easy. We plus had a, a significant part of the political landscape having doubts about the wisdom of entering so quickly into the European Union, so that into the Eurozone, that also created a lot of doubts. Plus the experience of Greece, which was the experience most known among Cypriots with the rounding up of prices. Anybody who has uh, ridden a taxi from the airport to Athens will have heard all about the dreadful things that the Bureau has brought to Greece. And of course, that, as we all know, is not the case. You know, it's a country that went from double-digit inflation, from double-digit interest rates, from an impossibility to borrow, to buy a house, consumer doable car, to a country that has been able to weather the second um, Iraq war uh, without even knowing that it was happening while the drachma collapsed. 
during the, the first one. So, but impressions count, and uh, Cypriots felt that uh, the euro was responsible for a lot of the things that, uh, you know, the, the prices of coffee and cigarettes and other things that were supposed, and probably were rounded up, but compared with the other things, was um, they paled, I think, in comparison with the benefits that membership brought to Greece of the Eurozone. So we were skeptical. Uh, public opinion polls showed that more than half of the people thought it was a bad idea, that it would impact the economy negatively, and then personally, even worse. So I, but many of us insisted that it was a good thing. We approached it with optimism and with some self-confidence. I think that was a good thing to have done. Uh, very, very quickly, Cypriots uh, stopped using the pound and are now almost exclusively using uh, uh, the euro. Uh, banks uh, were well prepared. Businesses were less so reluctant to stock up in euros, but eventually and within a few days, uh, they were able to really uh, change um, the whole landscape. And we are now talking about a full-pledged um, Euro economy. I mean, I haven't been in every village, and I suspect there are people in what we call the vulnerable groups that we concentrated our campaign of information and communication and education that are still somewhat um, inconvenienced by the fact that, but these are the same people that are still talking about shillings and uh, so I think it will take a little time, but I think by all intents and purposes the transition happened uh, very smoothly. There was rounding up of prices, there is no question about that. Not all of it because of the abuse of capitalism that is usually uh, the scapegoat. I think people that used to charge a pound to park your car and it, if it was close where you wanted to know and they suspected they could get away with two euros, they said it was two euros. But I think it was mostly because they didn't want to look for the 30 cents to, uh, to give it back to you. Uh, kebab houses did it because it was convenient to go. Uh, you know, it usually, I don't know how recently you've been to Cyprus, but it was about two pounds to 25. They made it five euro. The churches are complaining. I have to tell you, because they, uh, where people used to put the pound, now they put the euro. <laughs> but, but I tell you, and I will tell our distinguished guest here, that the priest rose to the occasion, and they said, please let us not hear the noise of coins. So <laughs> now people put five euros. So we, we overcame that phenomenon also uh, quite happily. So by and large, uh, a good, um, a good uh, uh, transition period. People do it um, in good spirits. And that despite the fact, and I will just I will spend one second, I think all of you are also what is happened, are following what is happening now in the world, uh, we do have um, a period of inflation is connected with oil prices, with the prices of cereals. The fact that this um, uh, workshop of the world uh, 
China has, who has spoiled us with low cost and relatively high quality goods is no longer an economy that is producing things at sort of amazingly low prices. There is even inflation in China. So we are going through an inflationary period. So the backdrop of this, of this change over to the Eurozone is a significant pressure on, on inflation. And uh, that I think um, in some sense it has been helpful because we can always say that the increases in prices as they happen, and I think that's legitimate, can be blamed in this worldwide phenomenon. Worldwide liquidity is also at its highest with banks competing uh, to lend. So uh, by and large, with this backdrop, with the, all these fears, with the fact that people did, were tempted to round up prices, um, and uh, by and large, we can say this was a successful um, a changeover. But of course, and as the, the title of uh, today's, uh, it was first a debate, but now I'm glad to see it's a discussion, uh, is the challenges ahead, of course, are, are just as important. And we have to begin from the competitiveness of the economy that is related to, uh, to um, inflation. Uh, you know, you join a monetary union, you have a common currency, you cannot move an up and down uh, interest rates, monetary policy, the exchange rate. It's, um, you have to remain competitive within that union and, of course, together with the rest of your partners um, without. So it's extremely important for a small open economy not to get into an inflationary spiral. And it will take some uh, political will and some work by everybody, not allow this hump of inflation, this significant increase in inflationary pressures to translate into unreasonable wage increases, which then, of course, will lead to more price increases. And before you know it, you get into a spiral. And again, and this is not uh, a, a sort of a philosophical or ideological uh, uh, um, position, but as you well know, all of you, it's much easier to, to, to cure inflation when it's, um, when it's in its early stages and it's at low levels. And the cost in terms of a loss of output and employment uh, when inflation gets out of hand, and you have to do it, there is no alternative. Once inflation gets out of hand, you've got to cure it. There is no, you've got to attack it. And if you have to do it through significantly higher interest rates, if we have to do it collectively as Europe, or if you have to reduce ma uh, money wages one way or another, which is impossible. I mean, these are the kinds of things that if they are not addressed uh, early on, they will uh, lead you into significant trouble. So. The first thing to do is to be absolutely sure that um, productivity, competitiveness, um, which is related, of course, to the money, wage, uh, inflation link, um, is uh, the first priority of a collective economic policy, unions, employers, uh, government. The other challenge that we face in Cyprus, and that will not surprise you because you know it, from all modern economies are the difficulties 
associated with the aging of the population. People in Cyprus, like everywhere else in Europe and elsewhere, they live a lot longer than some years ago. We have a social security system that was designed when people would retire at 60 and then live a few more years. Now people still retire at 60 and they live to be over 80. So the ratio of people working to those who draw from the social security system is becoming year by year worse. So unless we do something about it and quickly, we will have to face these long-term sustainability um, issues. Um, and of course, an aging population has other implications. The uh, health insurance, health um, uh, spending on pharmaceutical or health care spending is, of course, a, a, a phenomenon that we have to, again, live with. And that is why, you know, leading up to the election, uh, as you know, we're going now towards the finish line of the presidential elections, people were very critical that we were so proud, proud in the sense that we, we said it happened, but you know, that we ended up with a budget surplus. They said, why are you running surpluses? Why don't you share uh, uh, the money with the people? And of course we did to some extent, but our eye, one and a half of our two eyes were on the long-term sustainability of public finances and therefore we wanted to really be sure that the debt would be declining and that we'd be running surpluses to be ready for the medium-term challenges that come with the aging of the population. We are also experiencing what you would have expected as the prospects of entering into the European Union, into the Eurozone, meant we had a lot of more investment, a lot of interest in Cyprus, but we also had a significant increase in the prices of non-traded goods, and the primary non-traded good is land, of course. Again, any of you who have visited Cyprus the last year or so uh, will not recognize, recognize the price of a building plot or the price of an apartment is becoming almost out of reach. And that, I think, is a, it's almost a, a natural outcome of entering into um, a market like we've entered, the prices of things that you trade with others in an open economy decline, those that, you, that do not, and the supply and demand situation is such, um, explodes, and that's what is happening. Another area where we really have to address is the remaining labor market rigidities. We have very strong unions uh, everywhere, uh, paramount and most important in the public sector, which is a malign sector, and in fairness, one has to acknowledge that without a good public service sector, we wouldn't have managed our way towards the European Union or the Eurozone, but it is a fact that there are big pockets of inefficiency and uh, a lot of room for improvement. So the public sector um, productivity uh, through simple things like a better evaluation um, system, a better reward system, a more flexible transfer of people to where they are needed from where they are, but they may or may not be doing what is needed by the economy, which of course is practically impossible in Cyprus. 
needs to be improved, no question about that. But overall, I think in the labor market, we need to sort of come to terms that there are economies in Scandinavia and elsewhere that have managed to combine well the protection of the individual with a liberalization of the, of the labor market. You do not protect the job if it's no longer sustainable, but you, but you protect and you retrain the individual. It will take time for people to gain confidence in that, but it has to be done. Similarly, we need to improve competition in some markets. Uh, I don't think it's um, sustainable to have only one big operator in telecom, which every other country has several, and that is an important ingredient of uh, progress in information, in information technology, in the knowledge economy. These are things, power, electricity, energy, are important sectors where we have to be more competitive. We have to be um, bring ourselves more in line with what is happening in economies uh, to which we say we want to be compared with. Research and innovation is another area. I don't suspect Cyprus will be um, a place where uh, many new things will be invented in terms of uh, revolutionary um, new products or ideas in terms of research, but there is a lot of room, I think, for people to do better what they are doing and to innovate. And so that's another area where uh, uh, the challenge ahead uh, is an important one. So just to summarize, a good recent history, a good economic record, a successful partnership between the private sector um, and uh, the government, an economy that is doing well, is growing fast, uh, is creating jobs, standards of living uh, are increasing, social protection is improving, it's better targeted so that uh, those who really need can get a lot more instead of giving a little bit to everybody so those who need it don't really feel the difference with what you give them. A good diagnosis of what needs to be done, I believe, for the future. And what is needed is now some consensus, some political courage to uh, make some of the changes that will uh, enable Cyprus to continue on this successful uh, growth path, take advantage of the good opportunities that the Eurozone um, brings with it, deal with some long, these longer-term problems of the aging of the population, and in general, uh, continue to be one of the, I believe, one of the better performance of the European Union and the Eurozone. So I think with those introductory uh, remarks, I think perhaps we can uh, set the stage with after uh, my friend uh, Chris speaks to also get into a question and answer where we can focus on some of the things that perhaps are of greater interest to you. Thank you very much. All right, thank you uh, very much, uh, Kevin, for your introduction. And 
Michael, I got two introductions for the price of one here. I mean, I was expecting my colleague to be complimentary, but to get the second one from Michael was a bonus. Um, the, and uh, well, welcome to everyone, uh, to the LSE. Um, the, the topic today, as, as you know, is um, this the challenges facing Cyprus by, by entering the, the Eurozone. And, um, and beforehand, we agreed with Michael that each one of us should talk for 15 minutes and then we'll have questions. But I was looking at the clock and he's spoken for half an hour. I feel so cheated because he covered every point I was going to cover in the, in the second 15 minutes. I was tempted to say to him, sit down now. No. <laughs> but it was all very interesting. I agree entirely. Originally, um, Kevin called this um, a, a debate, as Michael mentioned. And I said to him, no, but we do agree in, in uh, just about everything. So it shouldn't be a debate, maybe a discussion. Um, but I also correctly guessed that um, Michael was going to talk a lot about the uh, government's record in economic uh, policy and the performance of Cyprus in, uh, in recent years. So, so I decided to um, focus more on, um, on some more sort of general issues concerning the adoption of the euro and, and what's been happening in Europe, in Europe to some extent. <coughs> Although, as I mentioned, I will stick to my 10 minutes or 15 minutes maximum, I think, and then uh, give you time uh, for questions. Um, now, the... Um, now, now, of course, we do, we, we do teach a lot about the euro and what it implies in everything in, for an economy. And, 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 when you, and when you teach that within, uh, with, within economics, you know, within current economic thinking, you're always hard-pressed to find reasons why adopting a single currency is important. You know, it's, it's not really important if you sort of in, in, in economics. You know, if you focus entirely on the economics, there aren't really um, many things that should be different if you adopt the euro or if you haven't. And of course, you, you can tell that. You know, I mean, look at how well Denmark is doing, for example, compared with, which is outside the euro, compared, say, with Finland, which is inside the euro, you know, two similar countries. There isn't much difference between them. Um, in, in Cyprus, however, there, there is such euphoria for, from the adoption of the euro, and, and, and you know, it's as if the country has uh, moved on to a higher stage. I, the, last week, we had... Um, the celebrations from, from the adoption of the euro in Cyprus, and I was fortunate enough to, to be there. And um, what the president built it as the, um, I think it's the third most significant event in the history of Cyprus. One was independence in 1960, the other was entry into the European Union two years ago, and the other one was adoption of the euro. And, you know, the center of one of the main thoroughfares of Nicosia was closed. Everyone was out celebrating. I mean, can you imagine Britain adopting the euro and closing Trafalgar Square so everyone could come <laughs> out in the street to dance, you know? And, you know, especially commissioned music events and everything. I, I mean, it was fantastic. You know, I'm not complaining, but, uh, but it is built like that. So, uh, but, but I think a lot of it is mixed up with the politics, uh, really. I mean, like, when you go down to the economics, you know, the euro might make difference to some things, maybe not, not that much though. I mean, I don't want to spoil the party though, so, so what, what I'm going to do is to, um, is, is to highlight some of the economic issues related to the, to, to the euro entirely and then leave it open to, um, to questions. Um, now, now you might ask, you know, what, what might we expect the, the euro to bring to Cyprus in the economy, you know, like the way we do, the, the way we have been doing economic policy in, in Cyprus and, and everything. And, and, and I think the, the, the most important 
factors really that you expect the euro to bring you are, are related to monetary policy, to, to monetary performance, because the euro is it's, it's a currency, it's not anything that has to do with the real economy. And, and, and the euro will bring an anti-inflationary discipline in, um, in Cyprus. When, when we first started economic policy, and I say when we first started because I've been a member of the Monetary Policy Committee of the Central Bank of Cyprus for the last seven years with the objective of converging the, uh, our monetary policy towards the uh, one of, of Europe. And, 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 and anti-inflation discipline wasn't that strong in Cyprus before the adoption of the euro, but once we said we have to get into the euro, euro and we have to cut down inflationary spending, then it was very effective. Inflation performance in Cyprus has been exceptionally good, in fact. Now, the other, the, the other factor that uh, we've been a bit lucky in recent years is that, um, I mean, Cyprus had its own currency, and it, and it was a good currency. It was a strong currency. But, of course, it was a small currency, and, and there's no way it would have withstood any speculative attack from any one of the big investors, you know, like if, if Soros decided to step in as someone similar. I mean, we knew it at the central bank. There was no way we could defend ourselves against them. You know, we would have let the currency just follow the flows of speculation. We were fortunate in the seven years that we were following the convergence policy that there, that there wasn't even a single speculative attack on the currency. There, there were sort of hints in the press only once. And we had an emergency meeting when we increased interest rates by a whole percentage point. Um, and, um, and, and it went away, amazingly. Um, but there is always a danger that if you are in an economy that is completely open to the outside world, as the Cyprus economy has to be now within the European Union, and you have a small currency, that someone someday is going to attack you and, and, and it's going to spell disaster for many things. Whereas at least now we don't run that danger. That's why I'm able to speak in public about it. You know, had this been before the adoption of the euro, I wouldn't have dared say a thing like that, that, that we had this fear. Um, then the, 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 other, the other factor that helps when you are in Europe and when you are in a small country like Cyprus is that interest rates are lower now in Cyprus and, 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 um, and, and they will always be lower than what they would have been without the euro because it, it's, it's a small economy. It's completely open to uh, European investors in the same way that other European economies are. And the, the risk premium attached to investments in a small economy is always bigger. You know, you don't know enough about it. You don't know there might be speculative attacks and everything. So there was a kind of risk premium on interest rates in Cyprus, which we've calculated to be anything between 50 and 75 basis points. And now those 50 or 75 basis points have gone. Um, the other story here about single currencies that it facilita facilitates trade, I doubt whether that plays much of a role in the case of Cyprus, really. I mean, like, you know, we could have kept our pound and trade would have been more or less the same. I think the most important contributions of the euro are, are the three that I mentioned, the anti-inflation, the no speculative attacks, and the lower interest rates. Now, the downside, of course, is that you lose the monetary policy tool, and to a very large extent, you also lose the fiscal policy tool. You cannot use monetary or fiscal policy to regulate the domestic economy. Um, now, why would that be a downside? It would be a downside if you need to use them, and, and you would need to use them in a, in, in a couple of circumstances that have been debated endlessly in the economics literature. One is uh, when you expect your economy to be exposed to a different kind of economic shocks from your partners. Um, and uh, the other one, when your economy 
is less flexible or more flexible to absorb those shocks? You know, how long does it, does it take for your economy to um, adjust to new economic challenges? You know? and, and the ideal scenario is one where you are subject to the same shocks as your partners. Uh, you know, for example, the oil price shock is common to everyone, but there might be shocks that are not common to everyone. Um, and, 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 and also in the ideal scenario, it takes you as long to absorb an economic shock, it takes you as long to respond to a new challenge as it takes your, your partners. Now, I won't say anything about the coincidence of, of, of shocks, but the second topic of how long it takes you to adapt to new circumstances is really the topic where I consider myself having a little bit of comparative advantage not absolute, of course, um, which, uh, because it's closely related to the structure of the labor markets of the countries. You know, it's, it's the labor market that will absorb the shock primarily. You know, when I say shock, I mean globalization shocks. You know, suddenly China comes along and produces cheap manufacturing goods. How is the European economy going to respond to that? Well, how, the answer to that question is how flexible is the labor market to readjust? You know, obviously, you cannot compete with the Chinese on producing little toys or less skilled goods, so there's no point in trying to compete with them. You have to switch to producing other things. Um, and that depends very much on how flexible the labor market uh, is. So the, so the first question really that we should ask is the Cyprus labor market ready for, uh, for the euro? Is it ready to be part of a bigger economy? Um, now, to answer that question, what you need to ask is sort of who dominates the eurozone? Um, spoken much longer than I thought I would <laughs> to this point. Uh, who, 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 who dominates the Eurozone? Now, the Eurozone is dominated by countries with rigid labor markets. It's dominated by France, Germany, and Italy, all of which have rigid labor markets. The countries with the flexible labor markets, like Britain, Sweden, and Denmark, are outside the, uh, the Eurozone. And in fact, if you look at why the United Kingdom and uh, Sweden have stayed outside the Eurozone, they stayed out precisely because of that. They thought that the labor markets of the continental European countries were too rigid to form a currency partnership with them. You know, Sweden investigated that by appointing a labor economist to look at the issue and Gordon Brown's six criteria related mainly to labor markets. Um, now you might say, why, you know, what, what does monetary policy have to do with the labor market? Well, the answer is that if, if the labor market is too rigid to um, absorb any new shocks, labor market might help. Uh, sorry, monetary policy might help. Currently, for example, the European Central Bank is pumping much more liquidity into the system uh, and uh, is keeping interest rates lower than the Bank of England. You know, Melvin King, you must have heard him, he's sort of against doing all those things. And the reason is because Melvin King has confidence that the labor market in the UK will adapt quickly to those, in the, in the private sector, to those challenges, where in Europe it, it's less so. Um, now, when, when we are within within the Euroland, it's even more important that we should have a flexible labor market. And the best example is given by Ireland because, because of the location of industry. If, if you're in part of an integrated economy, then industry will go to the labor markets, will go to the countries that have the most flexible labor markets. Um, and, and it will leave countries that have uh, rigid labor markets. You know, Ireland has been the main beneficiary of, 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 of the Euroland. Now, the question is, Cyprus ready for this uh, challenge? Now, on, on paper, Cyprus appears to have many danger signals. In fact, I was pleased that Michael mentioned them right at the end of his presentation. 
you know, it's got a large government sector compared with other countries. Uh, it's got a large banking sector that behaves like a public sector. Um, you know, dismissals are difficult. It's got strong unions with high degree of unionization. About 70% of the labor force is covered by unions that have some antiquated rules still when they operate. It, in practice, however, despite those problems on paper, no, no problems have uh, surfaced in practice. And, and the question really is that is it because there is cooperation between the social partners, you know, what Michael emphasized, or is it because the economy in Cyprus has been doing so well so far that there's been enough being produced for everyone, so wide quarrel about the division of, of what's being produced? It's difficult to tell, but sooner or later the challenge will come when growth rates will drop to near 4% that we've been experiencing over recent years. And, and, and that will be the real test. You know, are we ready for that test? I don't know the answer to that, to that question, but it's not 100% yes. Um, now, another point, Cyprus now has fairly generous social insurance system, again, as Michael mentioned at the end. Uh, total contributions for employed persons to the Social Security Fund is it's about 12% of the wage bill, so the corresponding amount is given back. Um, now, one of the things that is feared in Europe now, uh, currently, is social migration migrants moving to areas with more generous coverage. Um, now, there is no evidence that there's been social migration in Europe, actually. It, it partly is sort of false panic that we've had. But there is evidence that um, once migrants move, then they do take advantage of the social welfare in the destination country. So migrants move for different reasons. They move because there are jobs in the country they move to. But once they lose their jobs, they are not shy to go and claim social benefits from the country that is receiving them. Now, Cyprus has a large immigration for its uh, size. About 16% of the labor force are foreign migrants. They are lower skilled workers who are most vulnerable to poor economic conditions. So the question is what will happen to them if conditions worsen in Cyprus and if the number of jobs uh, goes down? You know, so far they haven't been taking, by any means, taking jobs from the domestic labor force. They are there because they are needed. Um, now, most of these migrants are, uh, are from Asian countries on fixed-term contracts, so the answer is very easy, the answer to my question, that the fixed-term contract expires and they go back to their countries. Uh, but increasingly, though, these migrants are replaced by European, by European Union citizens. I think so far maybe, maybe only about 20 to 25 percent of migrants are European Union migrants, if I recall you correctly. But, but that number is increasing. So the question really, sort of Michael emphasized the... Um, problems with the aging population in the social welfare system in Cyprus. But, but the question is, what, what will happen to these European Union migrants in the social security system if, if economic conditions in Cyprus are not as robust as they are now? Again, that's a, a danger. Now, now, that, now there are no such risks because the economy is growing so fast that the contributions are coming at a very fast rate, again, as was emphasized. Uh, that's why the budget deficits are so low, but, 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 but it is a potential uh, risk. It's one of the things that is worrying the European Union, in fact. The final point I want to make, again, it was stolen from me, it, it is that once we join the European Union, you do expect goods that are not traded, land primarily, to go up in price because of the flow of funds um, across the Union and because there is less exchange risk. Cyprus, of course, has a massive uh, natural advantage within Europe in that it has the best climate in, in Europe. Um, 
for um, which is sometimes called statium. I mean, as far as I know, it hasn't rained yet in Cyprus this year, <laughs> which is <laughs> which is very good for the northern Europeans because they know they have guaranteed sunshine. It's not so good for the Cypriots waiting for the water reservoirs to fill up, though. And um, and what's happening in that situation is that uh, land prices would go up. That has been experienced by all countries uh, that, that join the European Union, not only the Eurozone. Bulgaria, Romania have experienced it. Spain has experienced it. But then the countries that came before, like uh, Spain and, and to a lesser extent uh, Greece and Portugal actually, they, they've, all, they've also experienced housing uh, busts uh, a few years later. And, um, and right now the price of land in Cyprus is going up at such a Incredible, incredibly fast rate. See, small economies, a thin market, you can't really judge if that's um, an adjustment in relative prices. You can't really judge if, if, if the level of land prices is about right. Uh, the rate of growth is, is very high, but maybe it's a one-off adjustment, maybe it's not. It, it, but, but it was one of the um, other main factors that worried us when we were doing monetary policy. Um, what do you do to control it? The, the central bank has tried to um, reduce the um, loans given for buying land because you run into a risk where you borrow money, you buy land, price goes up, therefore you borrow more on the basis of the higher price. And then if there is a collapse, you, you lose the equity to buy the money, and that would be really bad. Conformity has not 100%, unfortunately, on the 60% restriction that there is now in place, but it's, it's absolutely essential that that should be enforced and that should be watched uh, very, careful, very carefully. So that brings me to an end, just one, one, to an end, just one sentence to um, summarize, and it is that now everything is looking rosy and justifiably so because the economy has been doing so well. So far it's taken the pressure very well. What the only concerns I might express, if you might call them concerns, is that sooner or later this uh, boom phase will end. You know, you cannot grow at 4% forever. And we do have to be ready and prepare the institutional structure of the economy to take the negative shocks that sooner or later will come. Thank you. Thank you to both our speakers. I think I need to stand up here because uh, for the questions and answers, I may not be able to see everyone on particularly this side. Um, fortunately, the the sound has uh, abated. So uh, you've been very patient. It's now time for uh, your questions and contributions. Could you please uh, identify yourself and please try to focus on a question rather than a speech? There are two people, I think, with microphones waiting to um, uh, help you. Could you take the gentleman just in front of you here, please? Yes, my name is Mr. Bonfo. I'm from uh, uh, Oxford Sustainable Development Enterprise. And my question is uh, quite straightforward. I mean, you don't think you need in Cyprus uh, some kind of uh, long-term strategies, integrated strategies, because it looks that there are, uh, let's say, several sectors, they go, they grow, other are, are not balanced all the development. So are more integrated and more, let's say, addition or integration should be necessary. Otherwise, you run in some of the problems we have in Europe. Let, let's see what happens. Thank you. Okay, thanks. Can we group a number of questions yes. in the interest of the time? 
Could we take the gentleman here, just next to you here, please? Hello, my name is I think you really do need to use the microphone, I'm afraid, to see the rest of the audience. Is it? Yeah. Yes. Uh, sorry, I, I just a very short question to each of you. First, Professor Fisalidis, uh, you mentioned the asymmetric shocks uh, that might be a danger being in the Eurozone. Do you possibly think a sovereign fund with a counter-cyclical formula uh, might be the solution to that for Cyprus? And to uh, the minister, uh, Mr. Salis, um, your speech has a lot of things of what needs to change. But with all due respect, uh, someone might ask, well, you, it's been a government for five years. So what did the government do to change this? And uh, what would you expect it to, to do if you win the elections? I mean, actual politics. Thank you. Okay. Could we take one more question in this round? Uh, please, the gentleman here is coming to the mic. Bernard Casey from Warwick University. Um, I wanted to talk about or ask about um, aging societies. Um, and um, I note, because I studied your convergence report carefully, that um, you took a number of steps to um, adjust the public pension system but not very radical steps. You, in fact, played around a bit with contribution rates, and if the contribution rates go up as much as is suggested, um, non-wage labor costs are going to be rather large. What you did not seem to touch, and that struck me as important, is the whole of the public sector pension scheme. Now, I have done work which suggests that about 10% of the insured population um, is um, in the broad public sector that 40% of current pension expenditure is going towards. You mentioned labor markets and labor unions and a very strong public sector labor unions. Is that one reason maybe why you have not moved? And last, in relation to that, you have a pension system, or you do not have a pension system which relies very much on private funded um, accounts. And I wondered whether more um, radical reform of the pension system, perhaps building upon your um, provident scheme system might not be a more sustainable way forward. Thank you. Thank you. There will be an opportunity for more questions, but can we invite uh, first Chris, do you want to pick up on any points raised? Um, yeah. Well, first, apologies, I couldn't understand the first question. I don't know if it was addressed to me. Do you want to I couldn't hear what they could you perhaps just summarize the question? Maybe without question the microphone. Is, yeah. With the microphone further away. Yeah. You don't think that you need to have an integrated approach for all Ireland to have a more sustainable, let's say, balanced development of the island? What are you doing towards that direction? I, I, I leave that to the minister to answer. <laughs> on, 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 on the question of. Um, of, of counter-cyclical shocks, I mean, there, there is some flexibility you know, to respond to a, a, asymmetric shocks within the countries, but it's much less than what you would have if you, um, if you, were, an independent, if you were independent of the, uh, of, of the Eurozone. So, so really the answer is it depends how big the shock is. If it's small, we can, you can cope within the Union, but if it's a big one, 
then it's difficult, and, and of course the best example we have is East and West Germany coming together, which was a massive asymmetric shock, and, and the Union is still suffering from that. Uh, also, I, well, I also leave the, 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 the pension question was really about the policy of the government, so I cannot read it now. Okay. Maybe I can st stand up because I cannot see yep. the rest uh, even from there. I, I think the, the first question is a very good one. No question that uh, the Hall of Cyprus, uh, everybody there will be better off if the island uh, was united. The production possibility frontier would be pushed out significantly. There are important complementarities in the economy that go unexploited. I think the growth rates would be significantly higher. And I think um, it, uh, it will be really um, an important development that will improve welfare all round if, um, if uh, there were as soon as possible a political solution, no question about that. I think uh, the fact that we entered the euro is a positive development in that direction in the sense that a common currency, uh, there can be no discussions about two central banks. All that stuff that was being discussed and was distracting attention from the real issues. So your point is a valid one. I think you referred to also a, a sort of another kind of long-term strategy. It, in an economy like that, it's hard to plan in great detail in everybody, for everybody what to do. I think uh, putting the conditions uh, right, whether it's the political conditions or the economic conditions, and then letting the private sector what is doing, what they can do best is the, is the, it's the right approach. There was another question that is a fair one. Why do you list things that need to be done and you haven't done it? It's, um, as I say, it's a fair question. Uh, you require a consensus. Uh, you require the political landscape to be conducive. It's extremely difficult to, and that relates, I think, to the question of, the, of reforming the social security system. I, I myself was very surprised of how strong the opposition was to going to raising the retirement age from 60 to 63. I mean, really, if you really think about it, uh, most people, they are at their prime uh, at 60 and they are themselves willing to work for, for much longer, but there is strong opposition to that. I think the reality will set in very quickly and I think that will be because there are trade-offs, you see. You can either raise contributions by a large amount, which means that you increase the costs of production and you lose in terms of employment and other things, or you can raise um, the retirement age. You can do subcombination. Uh, the ideas that you talked about are being discussed, the transferability of uh, provident funds from one business to the other. Um, it's something that is... Um, gaining some um, acceptance. I think uh, we are now, you know, in, in Cyprus, like elsewhere, people talk about things and they analyze them and you feel that it takes forever. Then a time comes when people decide enough is enough and they move, I think, quickly to action. My suspicion is if had it not been for the elections, we would have come up with a sensible, uh, at least short-term, uh, reform plan, but it was in nobody's interest to show 
that uh, that agreement could have been achieved by this government, so people pulled back. I think after the election, it will be, um, uh, it will be, it will move uh, a lot more uh, uh, quickly. Also, we have a very strange system. You have a strong presidential system. Then you have parliament that has to approve things. And, you know, it's not always so easy. Uh, you don't have this, you know, a parliamentary system where you have the prime minister who has the parties in parliament. He sends out three whips. He pushes things through. It's, it's a very strange, actually, system, the way the whole thing works, although you may think you have the, the majority. So I think those are the questions. Thank you. So time for another round of uh, questions. Gentlemen here. Kiriango Chupras, a journalist for Dr. Saris first. Towards the end of your contribution, the first contribution, you implied more or less which are the main problems faced by the Cyprus economy. But could you please be more specific? Which are the three main problems in line of report? And if you allow, Chair, if you allow a question to Professor Pisaridis, which is not limited to Cyprus, it would be a good idea if we could have a professor's, professor of economics answer to the question, the prospects for Euro as compared with other outcomes. Nicely topical. Um, can we take the gentleman at the very front here? Um, a question, one thing that hasn't been mentioned is that if you're part of the euro now, you have um, in refinancing your, your uh, uh, um, uh, sort of uh, loans and so on, you have outstanding your bond, you have some more alternatives. Um, what are the thoughts um, of the government at the moment or you know, the minister with regard to refinancing more abroad compared to at the moment having a lot of the debt uh, locally? and whether you are uh, considering options like um, inflation-linked uh, instruments. I think Greece has priced one this week and it's been using this strategy a lot lately. And uh, secondly, that is, is linked as well. What, um, what are your thoughts about um, the sort of um, uh, social security fund and how you uh, are thinking of investing um, uh, the money in that fund to increase returns? Because one way, of course, is to manage the whole policy of contributions, the other is to increase returns of the actual fund. If you can give us some some uh, um, good ideas on, on these two subjects. Good, thank you. The gentleman here. Well, I used to spend some of my time teaching thermodynamics, but now I am going to make a point rather to introduce a political point into this economic debate by saying this. Professor Pisaridis has drawn a similarity between the economies of Denmark, which remained outside the Europe, and Finland, which joined the Europe. Uh, well, I'm going to shift the similarity a bit between Cyprus and Finland by asking the question whether, in view of the fact that both countries feel under the shadow of a large and rather difficult neighbor, 
this property explains that on both occasions, both these countries have, have to, had to hurry to join the Euro. Britain lives under the shadow of France, and we stay out. Um, another, the question at the very back. A lot of analysts expect that the European Central Bank will, will, will reduce their rates, and this is the first time actually that the monetary policy in Cyprus will be uh, will be established from ECB directly. What will be the consequences for the Cyprus economy? And what are the impacts? Will it be negative or positive? Good. Um, Michael, would you like to begin? Okay. If, if I can begin and be quick, because I, I, I feel you are rather critical. Ah, yes. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, I think it will be a good thing for Cyprus if the European Central Bank were to raise interest rates. My own sense, if we didn't enter the European, the Eurozone now, we would be raising interest rates. There is a lot of liquidity in Cyprus, a lot of inflationary pressures, and I think uh, that would have been a good thing. And it's a good thing that the business cycle in Cyprus and the European Union might sort of coincide. So when you need interest rates uh, to, to be increased, like I think uh, it's need it is needed now in Cyprus. It may happen. I don't think uh, we cannot talk about what the European Central Bank is likely to do or not. I think if interest rates were to be raised, I think it would be a good thing. It will have some impact perhaps on investment, but will also slow other kinds of, of, of borrowing that I think would be a, a good thing. Some of the main problems, I mean, clearly they, they sort of cluster around improving productivity, whether it is in the public or the private sector, that is connected with technology, including adopting new techniques like information technology, broadband, and the kinds of things that for a very developed economy we are very slow uh, in adopting. I think lifelong learning is an important challenge also for Cypriots. We all tend to sort of retire from learning once we finish university that and also people don't change jobs as often as they change elsewhere. So these are the kinds of things, in addition with what I mentioned, like the social security, that are of course macro issues that we have to bring consensus. The other things I think everybody has to work. On financing, um, we need to sort of try and, and mop up quite a bit of domestic liquidity. So my suspicion is we will be borrow more uh, from, from domestic sources, pension funds, they have begun to diversify their portfolios and invest, um, and some of them have done it well because a lot of products now are coming that give a sense of comfort, you know, balance well, risk with rates of return, some of them, they even sort of pay attention to maintaining um, at least the capital. So there are a lot of interesting things happening in those markets and those products. A lot of people are talking about the um, rate of return on social security as a way of contributing to its viability. But if you really look at the numbers, even if you went from 4 to 5%, the contribution it makes to the social security fund compared to what you need to do and what would come from, the, uh, from uh, increasing contributions or raising 
the retirement age or even modifying some of the rules and conditions as to when you are entitled. You know, in Cyprus now you can work for three years and uh, uh, you can get a pension. I mean, I have nothing against that, but it's not fair uh, to those who work 20, 25 years. Now people are talking about raising and those limits. So I, I think uh, all of those things are being discussed and I think some change will come about. Thank you, Chris. Interesting questions that were addressed to me. Well, first, the, the prospects for Europe, because I'm only qualified to talk about whether the, uh, wh whether the reform process in Europe, European labor markets is being going well. And my answer to that is, being, is that it's been going very slowly. Uh, countries like France should, have, should reform faster, really, their labor markets. Germany has made a, a little bit of progress. But where you get the real problems, if you go and look at the new East European members of the Union, I mean, the, the labor markets are in complete mess. You know, Hungary, Poland, they have employment rates of 50%. They, they don't know exactly what they will do about it. Go to France, Italy, Spain, they have female employment rates of about 50%. They are too low, although for the last eight years they've been trying to raise them with practically no success. I, I, I think... In, in, in that respect, Europe has been very, very slow uh, reforming, even within its own agenda. Um, Cyprus, of course, is the exception there. I mean, the Cyprus labor market has been doing very well in terms of employment rates and, uh, and reform, but, but as I mentioned, it might be related to the rate of growth, but once you are in the labor force, it's, it's much easier. You know, you create the, the, the sort of um, mentality of, of, of employment, which is very strong in Cyprus now. Um, the, um, the question whether Cyprus and Finland hurry to join because of, of a big neighbor, I, I, I agree entirely with that. In fact, I thought you were going to say Ireland rather than <laughs> Finland. I mean, you know, why did Ireland hurry so much to join? Because Britain wasn't joining and he wanted to do something independent from Britain. <laughs> Otherwise, if you just looked at the, uh, you know, I mean, Ireland has been, so, has been doing so well, actually, now it's difficult to criticize them for what they've done. But, but if you, if you go back and think, you know, when the euro was first being introduced, was it a good idea for Ireland to join? I bet you 90% you know, of economists would have said no because it's so closely linked with the British economy. It's much, it, it, it benefits much more if it follows policy closer to Britain than to Eurozone. And, and, but, but, but there are, you know, these things are tied in with um, politics. They don't matter that much in the end, actually, because the euro doesn't matter as much as in, in the economy in, in the long term. You know. um, and finally, ECB reducing or raising rates. I mean, th I mean, there's a very interesting question here that poses a real challenge to, to the economist. In fact, it's very closely related to, um, to what, I don't know if you're, are you an economic student? Yeah, well, then you, maybe you've heard of, of, of um, timing, policy inconsistency, timing consistency. That, that's exactly what Cyprus is facing now. Because it, it's true that if the economy of Cyprus has been performing the way it's been performing now, the, the, the optimal monetary policy response would be to raise interest rates. In fact, six months ago, we were saying in, in our committee that we, we would be raising interest rates now if it wasn't for, for the need to converge with the uh, Eurozone. But the reason the economy was doing so well was the promise to get into the Eurozone. So y you announce a policy that you are going to follow the low Eurozone rates and you are going to integrate, that creates a boom in your economy, and then you want to raise interest rates because of the policy you announced. But originally, you announced that the policy would be low, and that's why the, economy, the, the interest rates would be low, and that's why the economy was booming. So there's, so there's this conflict. You make an announcement, and you create a situation that requires, you make a policy announcement, and you create a, situ a situation 
that requires a different policy from you and you announce. But of course our hands were tied with, where they should be. It's the way to deal with the, uh, the time inconsistency problem, you know, inconsistency in your policy over time. And, and, and it succeeded in, uh, to some extent. So, so our hope is that the ECB will raise interest rates, but I don't think it's going to do it anyway. <laughs> okay. Time for one last question. Uh, gentleman, just next to you here, please. The philosophy loss from Presence at Apologies. Uh, Mr. Saris, I know that you have mentioned you've got facts about the economy going well, there are high growth rates, surplus, etc. However, from the things you said, you mentioned that uh, the social security return is weak. Uh, we might have to work up to CPF three and maybe when IMF goes to over sixty five. And the last time is to have so first because for me as my expression looks very promising. Um, what are you going to do to deal with this situation? Okay. Uh, our speakers are generous though inviting uh, another question as well. The Gentlemen at the very front, please. Can you switch the online? My name is David Kinsey. Um, as someone who's uh, spent a month in Cyprus for every year for 30 years, in the life of Wailing Song, uh, can the uh, minister please give me a few tips about what not to buy when I go back this year and what is still all right and isn't rising in price? <laughs> Can I contribute? I've got a really nice house for sale. <laughs> One month a year is perfect. Chris, do you want to start with the other question? Um, I'm afraid once I heard that it's addressed to the minister, I didn't pay attention, so I don't know what the oh, I see. Okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, it's I think economizing it's on the use of the brain. Keep it for you. <laughs> yes. I, I also, I, I made a, what I made of the question was that uh, there was a lot of talk about the economy doing well, but at the same time, a, uh, a reference to the aging population and raising the retirement age, and that you didn't find an attractive prospect for you personally, right? I, I frankly, I don't understand that. I think. Uh, uh, a, a person sort of beginning their career uh, thinking about uh, an economy that creates job opportunities in uh, high value added jobs. If there were 300 uh, people with uh, charter or certified accounting degrees in Cyprus now, they would be employed instantly into jobs that pay a lot of money. There is a lot of discrepancies between what people choose to study and what the demand uh, for labor is. Part of it is because there are collective agreements, there are wage increases that cover not only sectors but the number of sectors across the board so there isn't really good signals being sent out. But somebody who looks carefully what is happening in the economy, I cannot understand why somebody studies uh, very carefully and for long mathematics instead so that it can be and can join a queue of 700 people that are waiting to teach in a high school mathematics when with the same skills you can get an accounting degree or a business administration, some other thing that I think can, for which you can very quickly look for employment. So my own sense, if, uh, 
uh, you know, uh, somebody beginning their career in Cyprus now and they have had the opportunity to make some intelligent choices in how to improve their um, own skills would can look forward to a very a, a very good life and, and, and including uh, you know somebody born today today in other words on January 23rd will probably live to be a hundred that's what the statistics show if, if they don't smoke and they don't do other things but uh, <laughs> on, on average that's that's what happens so uh, working until you are 67 is not uh, such a such a terrible thing. What to buy, what not to buy. Uh, you, you know, it's uh, uh, there is it's a place that is always good food. I recommend that you continue uh, your good habits. Uh, I hope you have already bought your house when prices. <laughs> if you didn't, you are in trouble. Uh, but um, and then from then on, you know, it's. Uh, you know everything. You don't need to be sort of very elaborate clothing. You don't need. To, I think it's a good. I, I I would suggest you keep going back and you do what you've been doing, and you will be in good shape. Yeah. I think the uh, you know I mean the stock market has been appreciating a lot, but I think it's probably still undervalued. So I would put it in the stock market. That's dangerous advice. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's not my money. <laughs> <laughs> You heard it here first, an economics professor advising you to <laughs> invest in the stock market in 23rd of January, uh, of this week. <laughs> For some time, we've wanted uh, to have uh, events on Cyprus in the Hellenic Observatory, and we're delighted that this event has gone uh, so well. We're finishing uh, almost on time. Uh, let me, on your behalf, um, thank our two speakers. Uh, and not, please, yes.